Well, good morning and welcome to worship. I'm glad you've chosen to be here. And while we're gathered in this room, we have folks joining us online. We have two other campuses that are worshiping right now with us. Would you welcome them as they join us in worship as well? Take your copy of the scriptures, the Bible, God's Word, and turn with me to Romans chapter 4. That's where we're going to land in just a few minutes. And uh, this is important, whether you have an electronic copy or whether you have a paper copy, I, I want you to see that these things that I'm saying are not just thoughts that I've had, but that they represent the Word of God. Have you ever found yourself in a situation that you felt like was too good to be true? Early in our marriage, and then occasionally even in recent years, Kimberly and I have, um, we've tried to take advantage of the timeshare presentation. Raise your hands if you've ever been through a timeshare presentation, you know. So sometimes you can get good things by doing these timeshare presentations. You might get a few days of vacation or a special gift. One of our favorite ones uh, was in New York City. And man, they put us up in this very nice place. And then, of course, when you go in for the presentation, it is nice. And I mean, they're just talking to you, telling you how you can't afford not to do this. I mean, you're sitting there in the room and it looks so good. You've got to do it. It's going to save you money if if you buy into this. And it really seems too good to be true. And, And I've experienced that throughout my life. And it's been pretty easy for me to say no at the end of the presentation uh, and just walk home with my parting gift. But at this presentation in New York City, not only was it nice and not only did it seem too good to be true, as I was listening to the presentation, I couldn't get over the last name of the guy that was trying to sell us. It was the same last name as the guy that I knew as the actor who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. And so I was thinking the whole time, you just wait, I'm going to turn this on you. And so he gets through his about 80 minutes of his 90-minute presentation, and he's trying to come in for the hard sell, and we say no. But I say, hey, by the way, I've noticed your last name is the same last name as the guy who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, the movie. His name's Jim Caviezel. Are you any relation to him? He said, that's my brother. I said, no way. He pulls out his cell phone and he begins to flip through all the pictures of him and that famous actor. And I'm thinking, oh no, not only did I not turn this into a gospel conversation, not only does this seem too good to be true, now I've got to say no to the brother of Jesus. How am I ever going to do this? (laughs) Too good to be true. Yeah, I, I tell you another time that I felt like it was too good to be true. It was in a church building about 29 years ago. I was standing down at the front. I saw my bride start walking down the aisle. I was thinking, how in the world did I manage this? I am one lucky guy, just too good to be true. You've got moments like that in your life. I think that way as well when I think about my faith. Man, I look at my life and I think about the ways I've failed God. I think about the different times I've let him down. And then I I hold on to the scripture and I think about the promise of heaven and I say, man, this, 
this is just too good to be true. And a lot of times in our faith journey, that's what keeps us from trusting God with the simple truth of Scripture. It seems too good to be true, so instead of embracing it, we just create things that we think make more sense. That's what we're going to talk about today from Romans. Now, I want to remind you, when we began this study a few months ago in Romans chapter 1, we began to talk about the gospel because this entire book, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, is a book about soteriology, the study or the knowledge of, of salvations, things that lead us to salvation. Um, I, I remind you in Scripture when we talk about salvation, though our relationship with God takes place in an instant and it begins once for all, the reality is there are kind of three stages to our salvation. First is our justification, and that's really what we speak about when we talk about being saved. We're justified. It's, it's just as if we've never sinned. We're made right with God in an instant. That's our justification. And, and so really, something you need to think about is, um, have you been made right with God? So have you experienced salvation? Have you been justified? And if so, um, you probably need to think about what is that based on? So sometimes we would ask a question like this in, in talking about our faith. We were saying, if you were standing before God in heaven and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And I've heard all kinds of answers and usually they sound something like this. Usually somebody says, well, I, I really try to do my best. I, I read the scriptures or I go to church. I, I, I'm try to be a good person. Sometimes an individual will say, if you put my life on a scale, of course I've got bad, and of course I've got some good, but I think in the end the good would, would outweigh the bad, and, and God would say, come on in. And maybe that's the way you think, or, or maybe you say when I ask, have you been saved, and uh, are you justified, and maybe you're thinking about, I have prayed a prayer Seven times I've prayed that prayer at the end of service, or, or I, I walked down an aisle, or I've been baptized and rebaptized and, and rebaptized, or, or maybe it's because you went through church class or catechism or confirmation, and, and you're thinking about all these things that you've done. What we're going to see today is that that does not justify you. That does not save you. None of those things. So we're going to clarify that. But that's justification. And, and then there's sanctification. That's that next phase that if you are a follower of Christ, if you're saved, this is what you're in. You're being sanctified. You're, you're being made more like Christ. So we're never supposed to stay back as we were. We're in this process of being transformed into the image of God. We have the image of God in us. We were created in his image, but as we follow after Christ, we look more and more like Jesus. That's the intent. That's sanctification. Until one day, we will be glorified. That's glorification. That's the final stage of salvation. That's when we all get to heaven. I mean, that's when we see Jesus face to face. Aren't you thankful that one day this old world will end and as followers of Jesus Christ, we will be glorified. Aren't you grateful for that? <laughs> Yesterday, we had Miss Marietta McKenzie's funeral. She lived to be just over 100. And um, man, can you think of all that she experienced in 100 years? I mean, that blows my mind. Just think of... The change that cell phones have made. 
she saw that in her, I mean, when she started out, it was like, uh, hey, Maud, can you connect me over to the people next? I mean, everything's changed for her. She saw the rise of televisions, and now you can look at television in the palm of your hand. She saw a lot, but in that instant, because she had a relationship with Christ, she saw Jesus face to face. She experienced glorification, that final stage of salvation. And all throughout the book of Romans, we see this talked about, this idea of salvation. And we learn that we're saved because the gospel gives us that kind of opportunity. And so all throughout the book of Romans, we hear about this thing called the gospel. In fact, we had to learn what the gospel was. You remember that? The gospel is good news from God about the death of Jesus that has great power for salvation to everyone who believes. And it shows us the simple way to be right with God, which is faith. Say faith. That's what it takes to be right with God. Sounds too good to be true, right? It can't be that easy. But yet that's what we're going to hear over and over and over again. And so Paul, in writing this letter to the church at Rome, he says, I'm going to tell you what, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes Not everyone who goes through all the motions, not everyone who goes to church, not not everyone who puts something in the offering plate, not everybody that's been baptized, everyone who believes, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. And and so, man, as we're studying this, what we've got to decide is, are we ashamed of the gospel? And so I, I, I gave you this picture that just helps you understand a simple way that you can talk about your faith with other people. Remember that picture? It reminded us first that we're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. I mean, all of us are created equal, separated from God's love. You might hear somebody say we're all God's children. Nope, that's not biblical. We're we're not. We were all created by God, but we're separated from him because of sin in our life. And that means no matter who you are, if you put your life on that scale, the bad is always enough to keep you from the presence of God. But God, he doesn't want to be separated from us. And so the God of the universe sent his son to be the king of all kings, the one who can rule and reign over everyone, the one who can make a decision that even though we're guilty, we can be made right with him. Jesus, the king of kings, he died on the cross. And because of his death, the Bible teaches we then can be made right with God. Isn't that good news, church? Don't you celebrate that today, that in spite of who we are, in spite of what we've been through, we can be made right with God. But there's a problem. The problem is we don't like the simplicity of that message. It seems too good to be true. And so we come up with things that make more sense. Like our religious intent and our design. And we live, even in spaces like this, we live as if the things we do are what makes us right with God. But it never works because we never can do enough 
or we'd never be good enough. In Romans chapter 3, as we edge our way toward where we're going to land in a moment, the Apostle Paul reminds us that there's no one righteous, not even one. He goes on to say there's no one who understands. There's no one who even truly seeks God. Then he goes on to say all have turned away. They've become worthless. There's no one that does good, not even one. And then he summarizes it in verse 23 when he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God. The message of Scripture is that even in spite of our sin, God loves us so much that he takes care of everything we need through Jesus, even when we don't deserve it. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? It's hard to believe. Romans 3 ends with these words. You're justified. Remember how I talked about being justified. You're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And he did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. This sounds like amazing news. But it sounds too good to be true. And so for 2,000 years, those who would look to Jesus have wrestled with this idea that how can a holy of God who demands so much and whose wrath we see throughout the Old Testament, how could he act in such a gracious way toward us sinners? And if you look to the life of Jesus, that's what got him into trouble. Remember, when, when Jesus came, he didn't spend all his time in in this kind of place. He spent most of his time with those that seemed like unlikely suspects. Just listen to Luke 15:1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, "This man welcomes sinners and eats with them." What must it have been like if, if you would have been one of those unusual suspects? That Jesus hung out with. A sinner. Someone looked down upon by society. Think you'd be grateful? You think as you experience the love of Jesus. The love of God. You'd begin to say. This can't be real. It's too good to be true. See the apostle Paul knew that this idea of God's grace made available to us through faith. He knew that this idea would seem so out of this world that that we would need to be reminded again and again and again. So that's what he begins to address in chapter 4. So I want you to follow along with me to make sure you know that I'm telling the truth. I would encourage you to find something to jot down some of these nuggets of spiritual gold with just so that you remember what's taking place in this moment. And let's just walk through this passage of Scripture because there's really only one point that I want you to get today. Let's start in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? So remember how chapter 3 ended. Chapter 3 said, hey, man, (laughs) you're never going to be good enough because nobody's good. All have sinned. And so Jesus, Jesus shed his blood. He died to make up for 
your unrighteousness. But Paul talking to a primarily Jewish audience says, let's call as our first witness somebody you all know, Abraham. And every student of the scriptures then and now would have heard of Abraham. In fact, the Jewish people kind of idolized Abraham. It was even taught in their scriptures that Abraham had reached perfection and that his relationship with God came as a result of his righteousness that he had attained. Father Abraham. There's even a song about that. Do you remember it? Sing it if you know it. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. No, 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 I'm not going to do all that. Father Abraham, man, this well-known figure upon which the faith had, had been built. Wasn't he righteous? Didn't he do this in his own strength? Couldn't he be good enough? Notice what he goes on to say, verse 2. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. He's just saying something that makes sense. If it's good works, what would we do? If it's good works, we would walk around going, look at me, the holy strut. We, we would make it all about ourselves. And, and so Paul, and this Paul, me, I, I'm, I'm trying to help you understand that that's why it can't be about what we do. Because if we're saying it's about how good we are, if that's what my salvation is based on, on how much I've been at church and how much I've followed the rules, then I'm really making it all about me, not about him. Paul would explain this further in Ephesians chapter 2. You know this verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourself. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one will boast. Same things he says here. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. So we're going to do good, but that's not what gets us this relationship with God. So back to Romans 4. So what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're going to get to the last part of that in a second. But I want to point out the first part of that verse because this is something that all of you need to write down. You need to underline that verse. You need to circle it. You need to highlight it. And then you need to live by this question. Are you ready? What do the Scriptures say? Let's say that together. What do the Scriptures say? I want you to understand that should be your guide. Remember what we learned last week? We've got the directions. We've got the book. We don't have to wonder what God thinks about the issues that we're facing in our culture. We just have to open the Bible. We don't make decisions based on the prevailing fads of the day or the personal feelings that we have. We make decisions based on the perfect word of God. And parents and grandparents... If you would make a decision to lead out that way in your home, man, that would make a difference. You're not helping to guide your children or your grandchildren based on what all their friends are doing or based on what is popular, based on how it makes you feel in the moment. 
No, you're asking, what does the scripture say? So Paul is saying, hey, we're talking about salvation, specifically the moment of justification. What makes you right with God? Is it being religious like you think Abraham was? And then he says, what does the scripture say? And then this verse. To Abraham, he believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What do the scriptures say? A lot of you know the story of Abraham, but just in case you don't, let me take you back. You can go all the way back to Genesis. And really, his story really gets, gets going about Genesis uh, chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, what we discover is that uh, Abraham, called Abram at this time, is just a regular guy. And in fact, we're introduced to him because he's the son of his dad. And his dad, by the way, was a polytheist. That means he worshipped a lot of different gods. And so he, he was certainly not a, a, a tall character in our faith. But in, in chapter 12 it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you will I curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord told him. And so as we're introduced to Abraham, what we find out is from the beginning of our introduction... He's listening to what God says to do, and he's responding in faith. Now, why is that so important? Well, it's important because faith has always been a part of following after God. Today, a lot of folks will say, in the Old Testament, people responded by the law, and in the New Testament, they respond by faith with God's grace. But the reality is it's always been a faith response. But did that mean that Abram was some super follower of God? Well, not exactly. Do you know what happens in this same chapter, in, eight, in Genesis chapter 12? The, the Bible says that Abram's on his journey, and he and Sarah come to this kingdom where they're af afraid of what the king will do. And so Abram looks to his wife, and he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. You tell the king that you're my sister. And if he thinks you, you're pretty, then, then you go with him and you can be with him. All right, those of you who are married, how do you think you would respond to that? It'd be like after Abram picks himself up from the ground. Yeah. Now that's just one of the times. That same thing happened again. There are other sins in, in Abraham's life. Later in life, when God gives him a child, um, Abraham had already been with Sarah's maid and bore a child with her. And then when his wife got jealous, they all acted like, what in the world is this about? I mean, he, he was not what you today would think of a super-Christian but something happened. And what happened took place in chapter 15. Look at chapter 15 of Genesis, beginning in verse 5. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the heavens 
and count the, sc- the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's, that's the verse that Paul quoted. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, remember what's taking place. Abram is an old man. He's in his 80s. He's already gone out on a limb, followed after God, not knowing where God wanted him to go. Now God comes to him at night, and he takes him out and tells him to look up at the night sky. In 2008, I visited Jordan, and I went to the desert of Wadi Rum. And there in the desert of Wadi Rum, I had the privilege to just park beside the road, turn off the lights of the car, and look up, and you can literally see the Milky Way galaxy. I mean, it's not like like looking to the night sky in Tampa Bay where there's city lights and there are airplanes flying by. No, no, no. You see the stars, the majesty of God's creation. And God said, look up, old man who has no child. Count the stars. That's how great I'm going to make your name. Your descendants will outnumber the stars. What do you think you'd do if you had that encounter? Probably go to the ER, right? Man, what happened to me? I'm hallucinating. And yet notice what it says. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. As hard as it is to understand and believe, the Bible teaches that all God wants is your simple trust that his promises are true. He just wants you to believe that he is who he says he is, and he'll do what he said he would do. That's what we learn from Abraham. Though it seems too good to be true, we can relate to God through faith. In Christ, by grace. Paul uses this word over and over again. He says um, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, we can understand that, right? Because all of us have bank accounts, and we know when it gets low. And when it, we, we have a Bank of America account, and when our boys begin to get older, uh, we got them Bank of America accounts. And um, I had theirs linked to mine. And uh, I, I did that so that I could watch. If, if they got into trouble, I could help. Because you, you know what happens is if, if their account gets down, I could pull out my phone and just open the app, and I can switch money from my account to theirs. And then Bank of America came out with this notification that lets you know when the account is low. And so then I started getting these notifications, and it's like, you wake up in the morning, you got a notification, you got a low balance, and so I go on there scared to death, something happened to mine, and I say, no, nope, no, nope, that's one of their accounts, and so what do I do? Their account's low, it's down to about $25 or something, and, and so I take everything from my account and put in there, and so now it's up to $75. <laughs> Not exactly, but that's close. 
But in, a, in an instant, I, I can credit their account. That's what it says God does when we simply look to him in faith. He takes us who are not righteous, who are sinners, who are in need of salvation, and he puts his righteousness on our account, and he makes it just as if we've never sinned. He justifies us, and that's when we're saved. And it's not because of anything we've done. It's completely because of who he is. One of the best ways I've ever seen this illustrated is through the illustration of a chair. And I love this chair. We got it with the table, and it's sturdy. It's heavy. If you can see up close, it's got kind of brass tacked to it right here. It just gives it a more of a strong look. And, the, man, that seat is strong. And, man, I'm, I've lost a little bit of weight, and so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that chair can hold. Oh, and watch this. <laughs> this is really cool. Ooh, ah! I mean, this this is a nice chair, and I, in fact, I don't have any, I don't have any qualms in telling you I believe that chair can hold me. But right now, I'm not trusting that chair to hold me up. What am I trusting in? I'm trusting in Pat and Charlie. <laughs> I'm, I'm trusting in these legs. I'm, I'm trusting in myself. The only way that I can demonstrate that I'm trusting that that chair can hold me up is when there's a transfer of trust. I'm, I'm transferring the trust from my legs to the legs of this chair. And now I, I can say, yeah, I really trust this chair to hold me. Now, I can stand over here and I can say, man, that's a great chair. I could even raise my hand and say, I love you, chair. I could bow down and say, that's the best chair ever. I could go through a lot of motions. But until I actually transfer my trust to this chair, it's mean, it means nothing. I, I think what we have to ask as we journey through a passage like this is whether or not there's been a time where you've recognized there was nothing you could do. You couldn't be good enough. You couldn't be religious enough. There's nothing you could do to earn your favor with God. But you trusted what he said he had done. And you transferred the trust from your life to his life. And you were saved. Look at verse 4. It says, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. That makes sense, right? A lot of you work. You have jobs. When you get a paycheck, do you ever take that paycheck after you've worked and go into the boss and say, thank you so much. I can't believe you gave me a paycheck. I'm so surprised. I'm so no, you don't do that. You're great. You've got that paycheck spent before you ever got it because you knew you deserved it. You put in the work to get that paycheck. That's the way it works when you work for something. But notice what he says. When the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. See, here's the problem. If we were to work for this, 
We're really making it all about us. And God wants you to know that it's all about him. The good things you do, it's not to make you feel better. It's not so that you've done something and as a result he accepts you. That's what every other religion thinks. No, no, no. This is about him. I get into trouble this way sometimes when I go to a restaurant. I, I believe when you go to a restaurant and you have the opportunity to tip, you should tip generously. I, I believe as Christ followers, we should be the most generous people uh, around. But sometimes I get into trouble because they bring you that little white slip of paper and it's got the total and then it's got a, a blank line where you put the tip. And, and sometimes, I'm just being honest here, confession. Sometimes... I've like left a generous tip and kind of turned that paper so when that waitress comes back by and I'm still sitting there, she can see it. <laughs> and what did I do? I made it about me. Not about her or just an effort to be generous. And that, that's what we do. If you've come into this place, or even if you're here today, because that just makes sense. Some of you are here today because you feel like, I've got to do this. God's going to accept me more if I show up at church, if, if I put something in the time of giving, or if I raise my hands when I sing. And, and what we're really doing is saying, God, this is more about me than it is about you. So... Paul's bringing it home and he says, let me just give you one more illustration. He said, after Abraham, who do you think about in our faith that you really like to look to? He said, what about David? Oh, King David. What did David say? So he says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man who, who God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. I read it again this morning. He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That same idea of being credited. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, why would Paul use David? Because everybody knew David was not perfect. King David, the lineage of Jesus, and yet he had blown it big. You see, if, if, your, if your connection with God is based on what you do, the best of us are in trouble. Did David have faith in God? You better believe it. But it wasn't based on his righteousness. And you could go throughout all of Scripture, story after story, you'd see the same thing. And that should comfort us because we see that even the heroes of our faith, they sin just like us. But we don't hang out there long because we remember it's not about them just like it's not about us. This is not the story of Abraham. This is not the story of David. This is his story. He's the one we look, like, we look to. So Paul says we're not saved by the works we do. He then goes on to say we're not saved by righteousness. And I'm not going to read this whole next section. It begins in verse 9 because it's, it just gets awkward when you start talking about circumcision at church on Sunday morning. But, but here in this passage, Paul just talks about it over and over again. I mean, if I were reading it, it would be like circumcision, circumcision, circumcision. I mean, and, and so why is this in there? 
Why is this? You're going to read this through the rest of Romans and throughout the New Testament. Why does it talk about it? Well, it talks about it because the Jewish people had taken this act of circumcision, circumcision that was first instituted by Abraham, and they had made this a test of your faith. If you're not circumcised, then you don't really have this faith in God. And so Paul's saying, just like it's not based on your righteousness, it's also not based on your legalism, on these laws. The laws aren't going to save you. That sign, it's just an outward expression of this inner faith that you've already expressed. And, and we have something like that today, don't we? It's called believer's baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism's not going to send you to heaven. But baptism is something we do as an outward expression of what God has done inwardly in our life through faith. So then he prepares to end the section we're going to talk about today. He says in verse 13, it's not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. And here we see something important. The object of our faith is not a church building. The object of our faith is not a particular religious ritual, though some of those have deep meaning to us. The object of our faith is the promises of God. And those promises are most manifested in the gift of salvation we have through the forgiveness made available through Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Seems too good to be true. Can I just say, yes, Lord, I believe, and that be enough? Well, according to Scripture, the answer to that is yes. If that belief describes a transfer of trust in your life. Though it seems too good to be true, we can all relate to God by faith alone, in Christ alone, through God's grace alone. So the biggest decision you'll ever make is not, am I going to church today? It's not, did I follow this rule? The biggest decision you'll ever make is whether or not you truly believe enough to transfer the trust of your life. It's really whether or not you believe that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That he's all you need. And, and the key is in that plus sign because we try, we try to always make it plus something. So, so for example, some of you come from a Catholic background. And in the Catholic church, even in the doctrine, the, the key is in the plus. Because yes, it teaches faith in God. But it's faith plus your works that equals salvation. And yet we're seeing that you'll never do enough work if your salvation is based on that. 
Uh, They teach that grace is there, yes, but it's grace plus what you deserve, your merit, that's going to equal salvation. That's what purgatory is all about in their belief. Because you're going to hang out there based on what you deserve, right? And so ultimately it teaches that Christ plus me equals salvation. And that's not the God of the Bible. God of the Bible tells us that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Everything. So it seems too good to be true. But we can relate to God by faith alone, in Christ alone, through God's grace alone. So the question of the day is this. Have you put your faith in God? Have you trusted What he's done as enough for you? Go back to that question we talked about at the beginning. How would you answer it? Hey, if you're standing for God in heaven and he said, why should I let you in? What would you say? If you would say anything but, man, I I don't deserve to go in. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And he He rose from the grave. He's forgiven me. And he's shown me grace. And I believe that that's enough. How how do you know if you're living by this kind of faith? Let me just give you a couple things. Number one, you, you ask that question, am I depending on his grace for everything in my life? So if this is true, if what we've talked about today is true, then the gospel, the message of God's grace, that's what's going to help you in your marriage. If everything we've talked about is true and you've got an addictive habit, these patterns in your life that are destructive, it's God's grace through the gospel that's going to make the difference. If this is truth and you're at the end of your rope as a parent and you don't know what to do, You've begun to understand, I can't do this no matter how many books I read, no matter how hard I try. I can't do this but by the grace of God. That's what it means to live this way. But it also means I'm trusting him enough to obey. So I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, you know, and this is true in our church too, we have folks that, um, you know, are, are seeking in many areas of their life to follow after God, and, um, and yet they're in some big areas or not. An easy one to talk about would be like finances, but let's not talk about that right now. So we, we probably have people um, in our church that are not married, but are cohabitating, they're living together. And occasionally someone like that will ask us, um, Pastor, you, you think... God's upset at us for that. And what does that say? That says, I I have enough faith to worry about the wrath of God, but I don't have enough faith to walk in the will of God. And so one of the ways you determine if you really have this kind of faith is if you're believing enough to obey him. Because that's what Abraham did. All right?
So this is not just an intellectual ascent. It's just not knowing in your mind. No, it's making that journey from your head to your heart and saying, God, I transfer the trust of my life into your hands. I understand it's not a flawless faith. I will fail you, but I trust you. And when you understand that, it changes everything. Because you begin to realize, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know. Thus saith the Lord. Stand with me and sing this. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Would you bow your heads with me right where you are? Now listen, there's no way that, that we can talk about this in a full room like we have here today and others online and not recognize that there are some of you here who haven't truly trusted Jesus once and for all. And again, today you've learned that that doesn't mean you haven't done good things. You, you might even be a member of a church prayed the prayer 432 times you've been dipped <laughs> seven times but but you've realized you know I'm still trying to do it in my own on my works or on my religious acts I've never just trusted Jesus I've, I've never just looked up at that night sky and said I don't understand God but I believe and if that's you why not make that right today got to tell him you're ready there's no magic prayer we pray a prayer in here often but man you can pray that as I've said a hundred times and never mean it but but somehow you've got to tell God I don't believe uh, Abraham said a lot but somehow he said yes Lord I believe maybe that's what you need to cry out to him right now maybe you just need to say for the first time Lord I get it I believe Maybe you just need to say, I'm, I'm ready to transfer my trust. I'm ready to stop standing on my own two feet and to, to put my life into your hands. Maybe you just cry out to him right now. But there's a lot of us here who do have that relationship with Jesus. I, I think back about some of my worst moments. It would have been so easy for me just to say, man, I, I couldn't have been saved. I wasn't saved. But as I wrestled through that, God just affirmed, no, you're saved. Holy Spirit's living in you. He, he's never left you. He's never forsaken you. But you've, you've, you've just wandered away. And you need grace to trust him more today. And so some of you Christ followers, when I get to the end of this prayer, 
man, I'm just going to invite you. You may just need to come and gather around the front of this stage and stand or kneel and just pray and say, God, give me grace to trust you more. Give me grace to trust you more in my marriage, to trust you more in my job, to trust you more in my education, to trust you more in my parenting, to trust you more in my dating relationships, to, to trust you more in my finances. Oh, God, give me grace to trust you more. There'll be pastors from our church standing here ready to pray with you if you desire that. somebody needs to begin that relationship with him today maybe you would just pray this you'd say Jesus I hear you I trust you I need you (laughs) I'm one of those sinners but I believe what you did is enough thank you for saving me just tell him thank you for saving me cried out to God for salvation today when we begin to sing in a moment I'm going to invite you to come and take the hand of one of these pastors tell somebody that's your first step of faith tell somebody you're not joining the church you're just telling somebody today that you've just begun a relationship with God a trust relationship so Father I thank you for this time God I pray that you would use this that that we would not miss these next moments that you'd give us an ability to respond to what you're doing and that you do that in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. You come. Whatever you need, you step out.